It's always good to be able to come together to worship the God of heaven, isn't it? And certainly as we come to an evening service like this one, we're so real, well reminded of the choices and the priorities that we've made. There are many of our world, I suppose, and I'm sure we've said little about it here today, but maybe it's rested upon your mind, but I think that there's a football game of some sort going on tonight. It speaks volumes about you, that your priorities here. You want to first and foremost gather with those of like precious faith, honoring that which is His will and offering Him a worship, a worship that's in truth and in spirit and a worship that will be honorable and pleasing in His sight. And that's what all of us wish to do tonight. In due time. I believe it may have been left in such a circumstance that maybe you have a wonderment as to about what this lesson's going to be about. And I chose that title rather, rather purposefully. But I hope that by the time we're finished that your faith and mine will have been greatly enhanced. It will have been greatly encouraged and we will have a keener appreciation perhaps than we have had in a long time about the providence of God and the way in which He rules in the affairs of time. It is with that in mind that this, these introductory statements bring me to this point and could I ask you to reflect on the question about the middle of that slide. Let me perhaps ask it this way. You and I understand that Jesus is the centerpiece of the Bible. The Old Testament looked forward to Him coming. The New Testament affirms He did come. And it closes with the declaration He's coming again. You might ask, if indeed Christ is a centerpiece, why didn't He come almost immediately after the Garden of Eden? Why didn't God send Him into the world maybe as one of the sons of Adam and Eve? Why didn't it happen then? He could bring in the characteristic of salvation. He could shed His blood for the redemption of the human family then. Why did God wait 4,000 years and send Him when you and I have come to the first few books of the New Testament? Again, that's a great question. And maybe you've already begun to have answers occur to you. And tonight we're going to develop several features using the Word of God as our guide and help us appreciate the overruling providence of the great God that we serve. It is true that as we close the slide, we're going to be able to cast a spotlight on the so-called silent years. Those years that occurred between when the Old Testament ended and the New Testament began. In a minute, we're going to cast a spotlight on about when that was. To do that, let's transition to the next slide. And let's highlight something about the Lord's first coming. Now let me take a bit of a historical journey, if I might, but it'll be a very quick one. You and I remember that God, of course, through the matter of the creation, brought into reality Adam and, of course, Eve on the sixth day of that creative effort. And in the years that follow, we soon learn and read about Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and we even learn about Joseph and the days of Moses. We soon learn that the descendants of Abraham through Jacob were, of course, those Israelites, the Hebrews, and they found themselves in Egyptian captivity. God, of course, brought them out with those plagues, and they marched toward that promised land, and it took them 40 years due to their sin to arrive at that place. Upon entering therein, they enjoyed, underneath the leadership of Joshua, a peaceful time for a while. However, due to their own ungodliness, they forfeited that land, at least in, in, as the time would come. 
you and I appreciate so well. They enjoyed kings like David and Solomon. But ultimately, they were cast into Babylonian captivity because of their sin. God didn't preserve a remnant, and out of that captivity they came. At this point, might we say, the Old Testament closes. Its last book is the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi was written about 430 B.C. The next book you and I find in the Bible is the book of Matthew in the New Testament. Between when Malachi was written and when these first few books of the New Testament was written, somewhat over 400 years of time elapse. Those are the so-called silent years. We have no books of the Bible that were written during those times. Question, what happened then? Why didn't God send Jesus about the time of Malachi? Why did He wait another 400 years? May I suggest to you, our God had a good reason. In fact, several good reasons. And tonight, could you and I reflect on these reasons? You'll notice as we've highlighted this first coming, there are two verses in the New Testament that maybe quickly come to our mind. One of them in Galatians 4, 4 reads like this, But in the fullness of time God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. And that phrase, the fullness of time, as you can see on that slide, it highlights completeness. It highlights fulfillment. It highlights a proper judicious time. Jesus came at exactly the right time. 400 years earlier would have been too soon. That isn't the only passage, though, and the other one is the one that serves as the title of our lesson tonight in Romans 5, verse 6. That passage was read in our hearing just a moment ago. And in that passage it says, In due time Christ died for the ungodly. That phrase, due time, as you can tell, it means the proper time, the appointed time. The God of heaven, in essence, had a clock for the benefit of His characteristic of sending His Son into the world. And the clock wasn't ready during the days of Malachi. But you notice, of course, that He died in due time. Have you ever wondered what made it due time? What were some of the features God was waiting on? What were some of the features not yet ready in the human family? Let's look at the first one. You may find it unusual to give thought to captivity, to idolatry, to Babylon, but could I offer this consideration? God's people in the Old Testament had a bit of a problem with idolatry, didn't they? Israel often had a problem with it, and we know the surrounding nations did. But our key concern is the children of Israel. And when you and I read the prophetical books of the Old Testament, books again like Ezekiel, in books like Jeremiah, we notice the extreme problem that they had with idolatry. But may I ask you to consider this. Once God sent them into Babylonian captivity and they stayed there 70 years, all of that, of course, was due to the very choice of God. He told them in Jeremiah 25.12 and also in Jeremiah 29.10 it was going to last 70 years. Even Daniel understood that fact. But have you ever thought about this? When they came out of Babylonian captivity, that remnant that returned to Jerusalem, that remnant led by Zerubbabel and led by Ezra and led even by Nehemiah, when they returned and rebuilt the wall and rebuilt the temple, 
idolatry was never again the problem for them that it had been before. May I suggest to you that at least in part what God had to get ready was to purge the hearts of His people of idolatrous matters so that they would be ready to receive the truth of the Christ. And so it is. You might notice the powerful lesson of 1 John 5, 21. Now that's written to you and me. Little children, John wrote, keep yourselves from idols. One of the first things then we've noted tonight in God getting things ready and what happened during those intervening silent years Idolatry was no longer the problem that it had been before. Look with me at point number three. What about places of worship? In the Old Testament days, we read about a tabernacle, that movable construction whereby God's people in the early Old Testament period were able to direct their attention in the days of Moses and Joshua and others to a place and direct it in the way that God would find pleasing. The time would come that, of course, Solomon would construct a temple. And one more time, the people worshipped at a respected place and a specific place. But could I invite your attention to 2 Kings 25.9? In the last chapter of 2 Kings, we find this record. When Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, he not only destroyed various and sundry things like the people's houses... It says he burned the temple. That temple was no longer usable. That temple, in fact, was such that no longer could worship take place. Question, how did the people worship, the Jews that is, when they no longer had a temple to go to? Well, you and I remember, of course, when they returned under Ezra and Zerubbabel and others, they rebuilt a temple of sorts. But there is something to be noted The Jews were scattered. Remember, as they were sent into captivity, they were scattered abroad into a lot of differing places and nowhere near all of them chose to return to Jerusalem, even when they were allowed to do so. They stayed in those distant places. And so if they were going to remain true to Judaism, they had to worship somewhere. May I invite you to consider the synagogues. In the Old Testament you find basically no references to synagogues. And yet the New Testament is filled with references to them. Everywhere it seems Paul went on the missionary journeys, he first would go to the synagogues. Where did they come from? They weren't in the Old Testament, but suddenly they were in the New. May I offer this to you? Those are the places scattered all over the place that Jews constructed wherein they might worship since they no longer could go to the temple they would go to the synagogues. Now, you and I realize as we close that slide that those synagogues formed a dramatic place for the establishment of the truth of the New Testament. I mentioned it a moment ago. Whenever Paul would come into a town, a place, and he would, of course, wish to preach the message of Jesus, where did he go? If there was a synagogue, he'd always go there first. Because there was a group of people who were mindful of, knowledgeable of the Old Testament, and therefore they had a heart that was ready to receive the message of that same God. The synagogues were vital places where the nuggets of truth of the gospel could be planted and could grow and develop in the hearts and minds of men and women. The synagogues were vital. 
God was waiting, waiting for the right time and the right place. And that involved the getting ready of the synagogues and their establishment all over the days of the Roman Empire. They didn't all. What else might be said that would make it the right time? This one may be one you and I have considered before, but it's time to develop it more thoroughly. Isn't it true that from the days of Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, God confounded their languages? And from that time onward, people were speaking various and sundry different languages. And even in the Old Testament, we remember this. The Hebrews, that is the children of Israel, they spoke Hebrew. That's the language that Moses spoke, and that's the language that Joshua spoke, and that's the language that others like David spoke Hebrew. However, that begs the following observation. You and I remember the Philistines. They didn't speak Hebrew. And we remember the Egyptians didn't speak Hebrew. All these other nationalities had their own languages, you see. Look at these thoughts with me. God was waiting for the right time and place. Among the rulers of the ancient Grecian Empire, none was greater than a man named Alexander the Great. In fact, even to this day, he ranks at a very high position relative to all the military commanders that have ever lived. Alexander the Great was a military genius. He conquered all the known world during his own lifetime. In fact, in a bit less than ten years, he conquered every bit of the known world. Pause a moment to think how impressive that was. The Romans never did it that fast. The Persians never did it at all. In that brief a period of time, Alexander conquered that much territory. Now, that takes on a heightened understanding when you and I remember that Alexander loved Greek culture and he loved the Greek language. Everywhere he went, conquering new, these new places and these new lands, he would implant Greek culture. And he would insist on them developing and making use of the Greek language. Well, needless to say, with that being the idea behind it, after he conquered all these, then shortly thereafter, Greek was known almost everywhere. There was now basically a universal language. Everybody everywhere could now address and be addressed in a common language. Think of what that meant for the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Jesus told His followers, You go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. Therefore, these followers of the Christ could go everywhere and speak Greek. And they would have a ready audience. They would have individuals who at least would have some acquaintance with a, with a commonality of the, of the Koine Greek language. Now, you and I remember what that would mean. Could I invite you to think about Bible translations? When, in fact, the, the Old Testament Scriptures were translated in what you and I call the Septuagint. Notice they were translated into Greek. Now, that by itself is so impressive. Because, again, now the world could read those Old Testament Scriptures and be apprised of that great matter of prophecy contained in them. Isn't that beautiful? May I say one final thing? That Great Commission then. Notice what Matthew's version says. In Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, 
All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy, of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. They were to go to all nations. Well, partly why that was so effective now was the commonality of language. Maybe at that point we can come to number five. Philosophy. Perhaps this one does not occur readily to us, but allow me to offer these thoughts for your consideration. The Greeks emphasized philosophy. In fact, on this next slide, I've listed for you a few particular cases. Epicurus, Socrates, Plato, all well-known Grecians and their ideas, their philosophies, their approaches to life were rather well-known. With that backdrop, Jesus commissioned His apostles and commissioned, of course, all of His disciples with the knowledge and the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But consider this. Epicurus, his philosophy was, live it up. You're only here once. Enjoy all the pleasures that you can. With that as a backdrop, Jesus comes and says, that's foolishness. There's a higher ideal to life than that. That rich farmer of Luke 12, soul, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. There's many goods laid up for many years. That's the Epicurean philosophy. And God said, you're a fool. This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will these things be that you've provided? Paul encountered these folks in Acts 17 there in the city of Athens. And one more time he refuted it. We can't live that way. There's a much higher ideal to existence than that. But with that backdrop, what, what, about, Plato, what about Socrates? Socrates insisted, think individually. You'll notice on that particular list. To that we could add Plato who insisted on thinking morally. Jesus insists all of us have got to think morally. Aristotle came along and highlighted truth. Didn't Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Wasn't it Pilate who said, what is truth? In John 18, verses 36 and 37. And so with those as backdrop, Jesus insisted Epicurus is wrong, Aristotle, at least in regard to the reality of truth, is right. And let me tell you about that truth from heaven. Those of the Greek, Greek world would have been ready to hear a message like that. And that came on the heels of those 400 silent years. Maybe one more thing among that. It would seem to me the sermons quoted in the book of Acts are dramatic examples of this. Stephen, for example, in Acts chapter 7, he boldly taught those gathered on that occasion and insisted, there is a truth and you put to death the Son of God. Now their ears itched and burned and they picked up rocks and stoned him, but they couldn't refute the truth he preached. In Acts 13 and 14, when Paul on the first missionary journey preached again to those on that first journey, he one more time insisted there is a truth and Moses and others declared the very nature of one who was coming, namely Jesus, and you didn't accept Him. They couldn't refute the truth. 
you and I recognize the fact there is a truth. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, John 8, 32. That reality then of philosophy, again, is in some sense a backdrop, and God was getting the world ready for the coming of His Son. What about point number six? Engineering. <clears throat> I say this one for two reasons. One more time, God in His providential preparation of the world brought about the reality of this. Roads in the ancient world, in many cases, were by and large non-existent. You can imagine without preparation how poor any road that would exist would soon become. Muddy, nearly impassable. And that's by and large the way it was even in the days of Babylon, in the days of Persia, and quite frankly, in the days of Greece. Rome changed all of that. The Roman Empire had by far the best road system that the world to that time had ever seen. In fact, would you be impressed? You can go to the middle to those parts of the world today. Some of the roads the Roman Empire built are still in existence. I might suggest to you the roadways we build here in America, 2,000 years from now they won't be around. They will have long since deteriorated. The Romans could build long-lasting, trustworthy, and reliable roads, and they did it. Not only that, could I invite you to notice how that would have played a role in evangelism. When Jesus told His apostles, you go everywhere and preach the gospel, they had a ready-built road system that permitted that concourse and that travel. God was getting His world ready for the sending forth of the greatest message the world had ever heard, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only might we make mention of Rome's engineering system concerning roadways, what about at the bottom? The Romans also had an impressive water con conduit system. Now I confess, there's some reference in 2 Kings to the days of Hezekiah. They had some system, but it was so antiquated compared to the Romans. The Romans, in fact, could take a particular source of water and conduct that water literally for hundreds of miles and bring it right into Rome. That's what the Romans could do. They had figured out how to do that. Have you ever pondered how that would mean for baptism? In the days of the Roman Empire then, when Jesus said that people need to be baptized, there was ready-made pools of water due to the fact that the Roman engineering system had made that water ready and available, not only for things like drinking and for bathing, but for things like baptisms. Aren't you impressed with how God was getting the world ready for the message of His Son? That sixth point, the matter of engineering, brings us to a seventh one. Religious freedom. At least in our country, we have been very thankful for religious freedom. And our first amendment to the Constitution guaranteed it. Remember that at least till recent times, we have lived under the banner of the absolute guarantee that the government shall not make any law or provision that elevates one religion or infringes on the rights of any. But every citizen has had the opportunity and the prerogative to practice his or her faith as they have seen fit. Clearly those days, it appears to be numbered. 
Our government is now infringing on things, telling certain ones, you've got to endorse and support homosexual rights, for example. Well, let's go back to the days of the Roman Empire, at least for a moment. Religious freedom. The Roman Empire, although we have said much about the kind of lifestyle sometimes they chose to lead, one would at least have to admit this. They did endorse religious freedom so long as it did not insult or blaspheme or oppose the Caesar. Now remember, in the early days of the Roman Empire, that would have permitted Christianity to flourish. The Roman Empire had no problem with Christians at the, at the first. It was only later that there came to be Caesars. Those individuals who in fact wanted to be elevated to God, and that gave Christians some problems. But in those early days, the church could flourish. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, what does it say? It says on that occasion that every creature under heaven had been preached to the gospel. Everybody had heard it in a little over 30 years from the time that Jesus was crucified. And part of that was because the Romans didn't oppose it then. They, of course, did come to oppose it later under those rulers like Nero and those rulers like Trajan and those rulers, of course, like Domitian and others. But at least at the outset, there was a dramatic thing. God was getting the world ready. The Romans were happy to endorse religious freedom then. In fact, Paul was able to go anywhere he wanted preaching the truth. Now, the Jews sometimes caused him trouble, but it wasn't the Romans. I say all that to say this, isn't it true? God was providentially preparing His world for the spread of the gospel, for the reality of the message based upon His Son. It might well be in light of that. We notice in Acts 8 verse 4, the disciples went everywhere preaching the word. Notice they weren't afraid of the Roman authorities. They were no threat to them at that time. It brings us to point number eight, which is the final point of the lesson tonight. What else might be said about God getting ready His world for the sending of His Son and for the message that He would bring? This one is maybe only an aside, but nonetheless it seems worthy to note. Just like we referred earlier to the synagogues and noted that there was no mention of them basically in the Old Testament. But suddenly they're all over the new an almost identical thing can be said about various religious groups. There's not a single mention in the Old Testament of Pharisees. Not a single mention in the Old Testament of Sadducees. Not a single mention of Essenes anywhere in the Old Testament. Not a single mention of Zealots. But as we turn the page in the New Testament, we read Pharisees everywhere. Sadducees. We read about these Essenes and others. Where did all these people come from? They weren't again in the days of Malachi, but they were in the days of the early New Testament. Well, that's what the purpose of the bottom of this slide is all about. As you can begin to read with me, the law of Moses was the centerpiece. But some Jews were more loyal to it than others, and others wanted to add various traditions to it. There came to be a time that a separation occurred, that is to say, a difference of perspective and a difference of approach. The Sadducees, you see, were individuals, as you can tell, 
that typically controlled the high priesthood and controlled other features. On the other hand, they accepted only the Pentateuch and really they had little usage and utility for the later Old Testament. Now you remember there's an error in that. For the rest of the Old Testament was inspired just like the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy. But yet they didn't really think so. They didn't elevate those books to the highness that they should have. On this next slide, you'll notice that the Pharisees, on the other hand, had a commitment to not only the reality of that law, but also some traditions, and they made some mistakes. As you and I come to the New Testament, the backdrop and the background that so often Jesus taught often related to them. They would come to Jesus and ask Him questions, and He would often state the truth that really was not particularly cited to either one. I might ask you to notice, Jesus was not a member of any, of any denomination. Today, you and I don't wish to be either. We wish to be Christians. Those committed to the truth, those who follow the teachings of the Word of God, Jesus followed the Word of God in His day, not siding with any group of men, if you please. It is with that in mind we close the lesson. God was preparing His world even through the 400 silent years for the coming of His Son, for the coming of the gospel. And that involved road systems and water systems, and it involved language, and it involved an insistence on truth. And the world was getting ready. Jesus couldn't have come and fulfilled the plan of God if He had come in the days of Abraham or the days of Moses, or even the days of David, or even the days of Malachi. The world wasn't ready yet. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. And it involved all of these things we've learned about tonight. Aren't you thankful to be the servant of the God of heaven, one who controls the affairs of time? One day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. He was preparing His world for the coming of His Son and the greatest message the world will ever know, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tonight, have you bowed in submission to that great God? Have you given your life in full submission to His Son? If you have, may you live faithfully till death that way, knowing that you are serving the God who rules in the kingdoms of men, Daniel 4.25. If you have straight away though from that pathway of faithfulness don't you want to come back home don't you want to come back to the god who controls all things like this because after all he always does things right he never makes mistakes he never stumbles and falls he never errs and moves in a direction of discrepancy he always does what's right genesis 18 verse 25 Tonight, if you would like to bring your life back into the reality of the rightness of His will, just like we had the blessing of praying for, for one this morning, we'd be honored to do that tonight. If that would be the need of anyone's life, realize that Jesus is waiting. Don't shun Him any longer. Why not come back home by making a confession of errors, repent of those things, and gladly beseech brethren to pray to God for you. If there would be anyone, though, that's never become a Christian, you are commanded by the Lord Himself to believe in Him, to repent of your sins, to confess His name, and to be baptized. 
And if we could assist anyone in that way tonight, we would be privileged to do that, and we'd be delighted to do it too at once while together we stand and while we sing.